In tough economic times, governments need to make up for a crisis in the private sector by spending more. The idea that the United States is on like up on a cliff where it might fall off right. is nowhere reflected in the financial data. Our economic immune system tells us when things are bad, we need to stop spending. And that just makes the economy worse. Not everyone can save at the same time. And this is why austerity is such a terrible idea. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Goldie, one of the most interesting things about uh, the circumstance that we're in uh, with the pandemic and the giant economic contraction that's going on, which is something that's happened to the country before, and is that people's natural inclination during these sorts of circumstances is to hunker down, is to withdraw. Right. Uh, and the way in which that plays out in politics often, certainly it's the preference of places like the Seattle Times, is to cut the budget, right? To tighten our belts. And what's interesting about that is that while that's the instinct for most people, it turns out to be exactly the wrong thing to do. It's the opposite of what you should do. In a recession, what you should do is spend more collectively, not less. And that can be the role of government. And this is why austerity is such a terrible idea, even though it's sort of the principal idea of neoliberal orthodoxy. Well, to, to borrow from uh, COVID-19 itself, I think austerity is the economic equivalent of a cytokine storm. Uh, your body's own immune system overreacting just instinctively, oh no, look at this, I need to attack everything. And that's what causes a lot of the symptoms that lead to uh, decline. Yeah. And yeah, our immune system, our economic immune system tells us when things are bad, we need to stop spending. I know it's what I do personally. Yeah. And that just makes the economy worse. That's right. Because if everybody stops spending at once, there's no economy. That's right. And, you know, while on an individual basis, businesses, for instance, may need to cut back uh, and and individuals may feel the need to cut back. This is precisely when you need government to step in and act in the opposite way is right. to is to support the existing programs and uh, and ideally to even spend more. And uh, we're lucky today to get to talk to Mike Consul from the um, Roosevelt Institute, who is one of the foremost experts on this issue of austerity and why it makes no sense. And he's going to share a lot of the data around that with us. But uh, to preview that data, I mean, uh, just, just to say that there, the world and the country have run a bunch of natural experiments right. on this idea of austerity, uh, because there are countries that were extremely austere in the, la in the global financial crisis and countries which refused to do that, like Portugal being a great example. Uh, and you could see, you can just see the results afterwards enduring and the and the differences are stark same in our country there were states that in the global financial crisis that 
cut their budgets and hunker down and states which refuse to do that. And you can, you can just see the results. You know, we're lucky to get to talk to Mike about, uh, about this stuff because it is, it is definitely going to be one of the most consequential uh, political and economic conversations that this country has uh, during this moment. Right. And, and to point out, of course, that one of the reasons why this is so important is that we're not just talking about the short term. There are long-term, irreversible, negative impacts on the economy uh, based on the policies that we enact now. Uh, economics is path-dependent. If we have a slower recovery than we otherwise would, that impacts the future economy and the well-being of the American people far out into the future. Because even if, if you have 2% growth instead of 3% growth in any year, even if in Every subsequent year you have 3% growth, you'll always have less growth. Correct. Here in Washington State, Nick, the, the Republicans are proposing budget cuts and tax cuts, tax cuts in the face of this. Um, right. Uh, so, you know, and, and right now the editorial board seem to be letting them dominate the narrative. That's right. The same thing has to be true across the country. Our listeners must be uh, experiencing this unfolding debate over questions of budget cuts, or you know, the, the term for that is austerity, as we begin to deal with the impacts of the pandemic on the economy. Certainly in our own state, that conversation has risen to the fore, uh, the almost always wrong Seattle Times arguing that our legislature should go into special session and cut the heck out of the budget. Uh, and uh, this podcast will be devoted to explaining why that's not just a terrible idea, it's actually the opposite of what we should be doing. That austerity will make uh, this recession worse and longer, and uh, we, should be, we should be spending, not saving. Uh, and it should be a really interesting discussion. My name is Mike Consul. I'm a director at the Roosevelt Institute, where I work on post-neoliberal economic thought and inequality and unemployment. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, Freedom from the Market, out next February from New Press. One of the themes that we have been sort of um, exploring on the podcast, Mike, is that uh, pathogens are inevitable, but pandemics are not. Pandemics are a consequence of governing incompetence wishful thinking and a lack of preparation. Uh, but here we are uh, facing down the biggest sort of political, economic, and health crisis in a hundred years. And, you know, the country is quickly mobilizing around what to do. And we were excited to have you on mostly to talk about the number one thing we shouldn't do, which is budgeting austerity. And we'd love you to talk about it and help us explore uh, why it's a terrible idea. Absolutely. I love to, I, I love to hate to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so what is austerity? Austerity is a move by the government. Um, it could mean a lot of different things, but generally means um, a move towards retrenchment, towards spending less uh, and, and putting less final demand in the economy for goods and services when the economy is not near full employment, when we're in a recession, when we're in a recovery. 
um, it tends to, it almost always is counterproductive as it makes the situation worse and even worsens the debt and deficit issue as, as it happens. It more generally means disinvestment from the public sphere. And they're often interconnected because sometimes conservative and reactionary forces will use a downturn to try to privatize or otherwise starve public services of goods. But primarily when we're talking about it, and especially when we're going to be talking about it in the next year or two, it means focusing on the debt and deficit when there are people who are unemployed and that there are services and goods that could be made if there were purchases to do them. Right. So budget cuts is austerity. Yes. Can we make a distinction, Mike, between uh, state and federal governments when it comes to budgets? Um, uh, states can't print money and the federal government can, so there are different constraints there. Yes, for a country like the United States, which issues its own currency, which has debt in its own currency, that's not true of many other countries, especially a lot of developing countries, the, the means of being able to combat things are vastly different. States, as you said, do not have their own state currencies. And also many of them have uh, consti state constitutional requirements to balance their budget, or they have certain kinds of limitations about taking on short-term debt to keep their economies moving. Uh, but that's exactly what the federal government can do. And uh, importantly, the states really are, and we can talk about why the states really are on the front lines of this, and um, they're going to feel the brunt of this very harshly unless the federal government takes steps to ensure that doesn't happen. Right. So the, and especially in, in a time of um, historically low interest rates, there's really almost no cost to the federal government borrowing money. Yeah, absolutely. The CBO, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, which uh, does a lot of predictions on unemployment and interest rates for the federal government, um, they are often accused of being a little too conservative. They tend to think that debt is much more present of a threat that it might become, and that the recovery might be a little better than it was, especially during the Great Recession. You know, they just said basically we're going to be above 10% and for, at times above 15% unemployment during next year, not 2020, but 2021. But meanwhile, interest rates, even after the trillions of dollars that have just been spent, will be lower, which is to say that the market will want the government to spend more. Uh, interest rates are, are declining. And crucially, for real interest rates adjusted for inflation, they're actually negative. The markets want to pay the government in a real sense to take actions to try to prevent this from spiraling into a depression or a prolonged recession, which is terrible for everyone, not just everyday people, but also businesses. One of the ways I think it's most useful to understand these debates in is, is when you're talking about these strategies, you're really arguing over theories of growth. The idea that we should cut the budget in the state in response to this downturn is really your way of saying the best thing for the economy is to cut services for working and middle-class people and to lower the number of workers that are employed by the state. And by so doing, the economy will recover quicker and it will be better for everyone. There's an alternative, particularly in a state like Washington, which has no progressive taxation, which is you could very easily continue to provide those services or even increase them if you asked the people with the money to contribute more. That's another theory of growth. I mean, the most famous case of this is in Europe during the Great Recession. So in the early 20 teens, um, you can just look across countries 
And you can see how much austerity they did, how much they tried to balance their budget in the middle of a, a large recession, uh, which we then at that time considered a great recession. Now it might even look quite small compared to what we're going through right now. You look at how much retrenchment, how much they tried to balance their budget versus their growth. And you can see across the board, the places that retrenched more and did more austerity had much less growth. Uh, even negative growth, even falling back into a recession compared to countries that tried to step up into it. You see the same thing with states in the United States, that there's different levels of of how much, because uh, the housing crisis in particular hit so many states much harder than others in, in, during the Great Recession. The states that did more retrenchment really saw it in their growth afterwards. So that's definitely one story about what's happening here is the idea that like how, whether or not the government has a role in ensuring a prosperous and just society. Uh, and it does actually line up with growth because you need people healthy and educated and being able to carry out business. Um, there's another story here I'd really like to emphasize as well is the kind of Keynesian story, which is essentially, there's two parts to it that are very important here. One is not everyone can save at the same time. Um, so to the extent that the, your, your state decides it's going to lay off a bunch of teachers to save more money, well, those teachers now aren't going to have as much money to go out and buy stuff, which means businesses that they'd normally go to, restaurants, right. um, other things, they also have to retrench. It's a downward spiral. Not everyone can save at the same time. So if you have this morality story, in, in contrast with that, with the morality story where right now is the time to punish the wicked, you know, like, all, you know, the, the city or the state went way over its britches and this is what's need, needs to be done to like bring in spending, but you can't actually do it all at the same time. The federal government and the, the public in particular, in a period in which people are saving more money because they're scared, they're at home, businesses are not hiring and expanding because there's a pandemic and quarantine and high unemployment, the federal government and the government, the public more broadly has to step into this role because no other entity can do it. Right. right. When it comes to savings, it's from the Keynesian perspective, uh, one person's savings is another person's income. They, they come at, at the cost of each other. Exactly. Yeah. Recently, uh, Mitch McConnell basically said uh, he didn't want to bail out profligate blue states. Uh, I assume he thinks we're the profligate ones and that the state should just go bankrupt. Uh, smart move in the midst of a recession. No, it's terrible. And, and first of all, it's not going to be a, a blue state thing because it's going to be every state. Um, red states that are particularly dependent on their sales tax um, are going to get hit really hard because sales taxes obviously are, are collapsing because people aren't buying and spending as much money as they would normally. So it's not going to be like three states that happen to have larger budgets than other states. It's going to be a nationwide problem. Mitch McConnell sees this as a way to punish his enemies in the same way that the Trump tax cuts were built to be very punitive to blue states. Uh, the Republicans are actually very unapologetic, and it's a really tough political asymmetry. Because while you know President Obama tried to expand, and and liberals and Democrats since have tried to expand Medicaid in red states, uh, the conservative movement is very unapologetic in, in using the state apparatus to punish blue states. Um, so as a result. It's a really bad political dynamic right now because I think you're going to see in the same way during the great, and I'm kind of shocked that they're going to try to do this, given that they control the Senate and the presidency and are up for a top free election this year. Um, the idea of going to war with 
Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, telling these states to drop dead because they will, in fact, be under severe difficulty, I think is uh, it's politically questionable and also an economic and moral outrage. Do, do you have an idea of what it would cost for the government to for the federal government to just send money to the states to um, uh, keep them from being forced, the, the states from being forced into austerity? The number I've heard to uh, cover the revenue shortfall is $500 billion, so about half a trillion dollars. Oh, that's nothing. Um, yeah. That's nothing. I really need to emphasize this for your listeners because it may sound crazy, uh, but it is nothing. It is nothing compared to the long-term damage and even medium-term damage of the slower recovery we will have. We will wish we had spent that money in a year or two. And also, in terms, if you're worried about like the debt-to-GDP ratio, the way you you really make that a problem is by killing GDP, right? It's numerator and denominator. Right. If you're worried about, so if you, if, if, if growth is much slower as a result of all this austerity, because we didn't spend the half a trillion dollars when we needed to, as a result, um, our economic balance sheet, to whatever extent you're worried about that, uh, will be definitely worse. And yeah. we, we know this from what happened in the great recession, the early stimulus package had money that went to the States that helped def defray some of their budget shortfalls, but we didn't continue that. And just as private sector job growth started to recover, public sector job growth dropped, uh, which slowed the recovery because, you know, public sector workers are part of the economy too. And, and there's like 20 million just in state and local government. Yeah, absolutely. About 10% of the workforce works for the government. I think that number is still accurate. But yeah, it's a huge part of the economy. And it's also like a ballast. It's something that should be a kind of automatic stabilizers. Like, you know, certain government services still keep going even when the economy is slowing down. And that's important to stabilize the economy as a whole to ensure that a certain amount of income still gets spent. I think the other Keynesian insight, in addition to the savings question, is that we're not just, I, I think sometimes, and it's very common with current day economists, is that they think that a recession now just means we're going to automatically speed up later. And you're essentially kind of balancing forward and backwards growth. Uh, like, you know, as if it's just, you know, like a little bit, it's worse now, but it'll be better later. What the other real insight is like, we could end up in the the bad place. We could end up in a period in which lower income just becomes permanent income. People just don't expect to make more money. So the economy in, ends up in a kind of quasi-permanent depression that takes a long time to break out of. Yeah. And uh, that the fact that we're not just going to like automatically have a fantastic 2021 because this year was so miserable. Uh, uh, that, I think, is not really getting through to people. As the economy, quote unquote, goes back to equilibrium. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, well we, we again, we saw that after the Great Recession, uh, growth levels never caught up to what they were before. There's a, It ended up with a permanent ratcheting down of uh, growth in GDP and productivity. That is exactly right. And in fact, if you look at a chart of GDP over the last century, and it's like, going up every year, 3% or 2% or depending on how you want to measure it. Um, but then there's like a ratchet down effect, as you described. It's just, it's like a little, like a little L on a side. It just goes down a level, but it never converges back to the previous trend line. Uh, and we're going to see that again now, unless we really take serious action. And, and it was even worse that for wages. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, workers are obviously the ones who feel the brunt of this. And while you know, um, the 1% and capital income had a had a very bad 2007 and 2008. They restored back pretty quickly by 2013, 2014. They were getting the bulk of the recovery and their wages have more than come back and their incomes have more than come back because they earn a lot more than wages. 
uh, where for everyday workers has not been the case, or they're only barely breaking even come 2020, and then we go into this. One of the things I've struggled to come up with is a good metaphor to explain to pe- so people, so it's intuitive, why austerity makes recessions worse and stimulus makes them better. You know, it's sort of like when your car spins out, your your natural reaction is not to turn into the spin. It's to turn right. Right. And when you do that, your car totally spins out. But if you turn towards the spin, you can get yourself back on track. Have you been able to evolve good metaphors for explaining to people why doing the opposite of what feels natural, which is to sort of, you know, shrink back is the right thing? Yeah, no, and it's so funny because I've actually been thinking about like all the metaphors we used in like 2011 <laughs> to like try to explain people back then because it's I feel like you can just see all the things, even some of the same people line up the same exact way. Um, you, you know, that that's obviously a project for all of us to think through. I still think something about the intuitive idea that like what is rational for any one person if everyone tries to do it at the same time. Uh, whether or not it's trying to like get through a door in case of an emergency or, or yeah. I don't, I don't even know the right metaphor right now and we need to work on it. Um, but that, that collective action problem or something that would make sense for any group of people. If everyone does it, everyone's worse off. Right. Uh, I think is, is the intuitive sense that people do encounter in their daily lives yeah. and it's very, and they understand that it's difficult to navigate. The problem is that the other side has two very accessible metaphors that are that are totally wrong, but they're understandable. And that is to think of uh, government budgeting as the same as a household budget. Uh, you know, you just need to tighten your belt and uh, and uh, live within your means, or to say that government should operate like a business. I mean, it's 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 really shocking to me that we're looking at unemployment in the teens for the next several years, maybe, when with real interest rates are negative, like. The, the private market wants to pay the government to do something. Yeah. Right. And it's just a political problem that we're not going to do it. You can already start to feel the ground shift. I think there was an initial bout of goodwill. And now you already have, as you said, people talking about, you know, the you know all these blue states, which are going to get bailed out as if that's even how the economy works, as even if the blue states aren't net payers into the government anyway. But right. it's very frustrating across the board. So I want to raise another issue here, and, and that is... Uh, how different this is going into this recession than we were going into the last recession. The last recession was bad, but it strikes me that um, our our workers, our businesses, the economy as a whole is actually less resilient now uh, than it was in 2007. Is that your sense as well? Yeah. I mean, um, businesses are more levered because of short, uh, you know, because of corporate governance, of private equity, of shareholder pressure, all the buybacks and dividends, you know, like they've been surviving so far. Okay. But, you know, there's a question of how long that survives. Households themselves, um, you know, are are stretched pretty thin. Uh, you know, student debt is much higher. Um, obviously, the mortgage situation looks different because we didn't have a, a run up in a housing bubble, but still people do not have much savings. And also, this is a very widespread crisis. I mean, like every industry and every occupation is going to get hit on some level. So in the same way, it, it's showing us how a lot of uh, essential workers in our country, uh, primarily uh, women of color, especially um, work very precarious jobs for very low wages. You know, I think we're also starting to see that the 
so-called, you know, full employment household that was like doing pretty well in the recovery actually had was on a very thin net underneath it and does not have a lot of savings and is could be very vulnerable and in fact is already very vulnerable in this pandemic. So you've called for permanent stimulus. Explain what that might look like. So, you know, there, there's a bill that already passed. I think the biggest problem with it, I mean, you kind of talk about all, all the different angles of it is that um, it does not automatically renew. Uh, people had pointed this out at the time. They decided not to go this route. Uh, who knows if they could have. But the big problem, and we saw this under the Obama years, is that, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of spending. There's a, Some of it's quite good on unemployment insurance, for in, instance. The problem is, is in four months and six months, it doesn't automatically renew if unemployment is above 8% or above, above 6% or above whatever target you want to make. And as such, you're going to have to refight these political fights to get these programs extended at a point in which, um, you know, if there is a Democratic president, but a Republican Senate, that's, we know what that looks like because we just lived through it. Uh, and that might be next January, February, when we're trying to beg to get unemployment insurance for people. And uh, people think this is a great way to sandbag a Democratic president. So why don't you just get ahead of that up front and make these programs so that they automatically happen in a recession? So when I say permanent, I don't mean like, you know, we're going to like do it all the time, all the time um, for everyone. It's more if unemployment's above 5%, if it's above 7 or 8%, then these triggers automatically make things happen, like an automatic stabilization check that shows up in your banking account, like an extension of unemployment insurance. So you're not hoping that we happen to have the political dynamic to fight a social ill of a recession with tools that we know work. So what else should our listeners know about this circumstance? What If you if give them advice, what should they be fighting for? One thing that I think is going to be really important is I think in part because we're coming out of the Great Recession with so many of these people had said, oh, my God, there's going to be a fiscal crisis. If you remember the uh, whole Simpson <laughs> right. conference uh, 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 committee in, in 2010, 2011, you know, we're going to have a fiscal crisis by 2013. Doesn't happen. Interest rates are lower. OK, explain to people what a fiscal crisis is. The idea that the federal government's deficit is so large, the interest rates start increasing and the government essentially has to borrow money just to pay its interest. Imagine how a, an individual could get in over their head with credit cards, for instance. Right. The idea you would have a situation like that for the government, which prints the money, is the currency issuer, is the is the government. They uh, have the ability to tax. They have the ability to to, um, to pay out what, what it needs to do. Um, Countries that issue their own currency under the circumstances we are looking at do not have these kinds of things. We are not going to have a hyperinflation crisis. If anything, we're going to have the opposite, which is interest rates. Deflation so, crisis. Exactly. Um, the thing I worry about a little bit is that I think that, so I think the calls for like a short term fiscal collapse will not happen. What you will hear a lot more of is in order to do anything, we have to get our long term fiscal house in in play. And you saw this a little bit during the Obama years. We're like, oh, you know, if you want to get aid to the states, well, then we got to cut Social Security or we got to privatize Medicare and voucherize it. Or we got to like do a number on all these states to uh, order to backstop their ability to fight a pandemic in their hospitals. There is no long-term fiscal crisis in the United States. Uh, there are things that will have to be done at various times to, to rejuggle who's paying what. But the idea that the United States is on like a like on a cliff where it might fall off right. is nowhere reflected in the financial data. So we need to squat that out. We need to ex understand that the programs we have are awesome and they should be expanded to more people for more generous amounts like Social Security and Medicare. And uh, 
the idea that some sort of long-term hurdle is going to stop us from taking care of our needs now is total bullshit and a total lie. And people are going to cynically use it every day going forward for the next few years. Right. I mean, what simple math, whenever the inflation rate is higher than the interest rate, uh, your debt pays off itself. Yes. I, I believe that's the right way to say that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right now we're like, actually like, there's too little debt in, in a very important way. And it, it doesn't feel like that because of the way the, the media portrays it yeah. and the way a lot of common sense people say, but like, you're absolutely right that, you know, the best thing to do is get to full employment that takes care of 90% of our problems. Correct. Particularly if you raise wages too. Yes. Um, we're going to appoint you benevolent dictator as opposed to the malevolent dictator we have at the moment. What would you do? to address this economic crisis? Um, turn the Senate into a, like, um, I don't know, <laughs> abolish the Senate probably. Oh, uh, yeah. that, yeah, go that, for yep. the Electoral College too. Uh, yeah, that's actually <laughs> like- Throw them all to the lions. Uh, not to the lions, benevolence. Uh, they'd have like make work jobs probably, like a rubber room <laughs> kind of thing. I honestly think an open-ended program. So first of all, we we should have gone more of the Denmark program, which I'll explain is basically the federal government should have backstop payrolls for the entire country for a three right. to four. This is Pramila Jayapal's proposal. Yes. In the House. That kind of system is a lot easier to execute if you have a solid union infrastructure in place, if people are part of unions. Denmark could do that very rapidly. And you're going to see Denmark have this amazing recovery because in a very real sense, labor, capital, and the government can like sit down as three people or three sets of people at a table and just say like, okay, what are we going to do about the labor question for the next six months? Yeah. And they can come up with a rational solution and figure out how to split who's going to do what. Um, we don't have that. We, ha we don't have strong unions. Unfortunately, we have state governments, which are often very hostile to action. Uh, and as such, you have this very messy program of trying to help out small businesses through the banks, which are diverting the money to larger customers of themselves. It's a total mess. Of course they are. Of course they are. Uh, it was so obvious at the beginning. And it's and it's underfunded. They're trying to do it on the cheap. So that makes it even messier. Um, we should have done something big like that. Uh, and I was not vocal enough about it. And it's, it's only late, later that I understood the extent that we would need it. But it is what it is. And it's not too late to do it now. Uh, is is one. And then the second is just an open-ended commitment to the states and to, and to people through unemployment insurance and to everyday people who don't work through basic income, uh, open-ended until the recession's over. And that's not a hard trigger to do. It's not like magic. You can just say until unemployment's 5% again. And I think that would have done a lot more than, uh, I think that would have taken care of a lot of the problems and allowed us to really focus on taking care of the sick and, and trying to find a way to deal with this pandemic rather than throwing everyone to, to the lions, as it were, uh, of trying to fend for themselves in this economy. Can you put a price tag on it? I know in, in March, you estimated the federal relief packages would need to be in the $1 to $2 trillion range. Clearly, things have gotten worse since then. Uh, what would be the, the range now? Yeah, no, it's funny. Like I remember the very first time we started talking at Roosevelt Institute where I work, um, I think we were talking like half a trillion would be the package. It was like the first couple of days of March. And now, uh, you know, two trillion, I, some of it was spent well, some of it's not. Some of it's kind of a weird account. Like some of it's kind of fake money because it's like the Fed doing lending and with permission from Congress. I think you're going to need another two trillion. And I think this needs to be really targeted to the states and to payroll and to everyday people. And crucially, that needs to like, 
be ready to be extended as long as there's a crisis going, which will be going on for some time. Yeah, right. for a couple of years. Right. The, I just saw t- today, I think the CBO just said that they expect, uh, they don't expect unemployment to get under 10% until the end of 2021. It's insane. And it's just, it's so, so devastating for so many people. And again, you know, interest rates are negative. There's nothing stopping us from trying yeah. to tackle this. Uh, and we also don't have like, I don't know if you remember during the Great Recession, because there was a housing collapse. There's all this stuff about like, oh, well, you know, what about all these unemployed builders and realtors, even though every single occupation and every single industry saw their unemployment double? Here, it's like, it's not like this is a judgment on one sector of the economy that needs to go away or something like that. This is a random force of nature uh, that, as you said at the beginning, is playing through our institutions and harming people because those institutions are weak and predatory and leave us more vulnerable than we need to be. Well, Mike, thank you so much for spending the time with us. And thanks for doing the work that you do, uh, which is very, very important. And hopefully the next time we talk to you, we can talk a little bit about what we did right. One hopes. One hopes. Okay, buddy. Take care. Thanks, guys. Wash your hands. Same. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. That was a great discussion with Mike, um, and he highlighted a couple of things that I thought was really interesting. One of them was that for sure this crisis creates an opportunity for trickle-downers of all stripes uh, to argue that we should cut the things that they wanted to cut in the first place, right? (laughs) Any sort of program for working in middle-class people that they didn't like now is the time to make an even more vigorous argument that we don't need it or can't afford it. Right. Well, that's, that's of course how trickle downers respond to every crisis, Uh, (laughs) uh, you know, to, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail to a trickle downer. Everything looks like an opportunity to shrink our government. Exactly. The other, uh, I think idea that Mike highlighted that uh, I think is really worth expanding on is reminding us that orthodox economic thinking makes you believe that because the economy is an equilibrium system, that it will automatically and and, uh, magically go back to some happy equilibrium uh, in the future. That because we're down now, we have to go up in the future. And that, of course, is not true. The economy is path dependent. And the choices we make today will determine uh, where the economy goes in the future. And if we point it in the wrong direction, it will go in the wrong direction. If we point it in the right direction, it will go in the right direction. And that's why being aggressive now and not doing austerity is so important in the future. Right. And and I think it's it, it's important to point out that even if you believe what your Econ 101 textbook tells you that the economy is an equilibrium system, it returns to an equilibrium, not the equilibrium. And that new equilibrium uh, might be much worse off than the one we had before. That's right. And we saw that after the Great Recession, we returned to an equilibrium, an equilibrium of slow GDP growth, slow productivity growth, slow wage growth, uh, an equilibrium in which uh, people like you, Nick, uh, did very well, and uh, the bottom 90% of households uh, saw little or no gain. So that's an equilibrium. It's just not an equilibrium that we want. And so, you know, that's why aggressive, contracyclical action now by government 
is so important because we want to be we want to get the economy back on the best possible trajectory as fast as we can uh, and that will take bold action and courage it's going to be a very interesting debate that unfolds in the country over the next months over this very subject both in both uh, in states right. individually and and at the federal level and and that's a se a separate takeaway uh, from our conversation, and that is that when we talk about austerity, we we have to talk about the mechanisms available to the states and to the federal government differently, um, because the federal government can create money and the states can't, and most of the states can't are are prohibited constitutionally or legislatively from going into debt. So the government, the federal government. Uh, you know, I know Mitch McConnell says he doesn't want to bail out the blue states and he thinks we should all just go bankrupt and that's the way to deal with it. The, the, the federal government has to bail out the states because that's the only government that can. I, I guess the takeaway for me is that it, it's super, super obvious and there is just an unending amount of empirical evidence to suggest that in tough economic times, governments need to make up for a crisis in the private sector by spending more. That's it. And when states take money out of the pockets of families and the payrolls of businesses and nonprofits, the, the, the economies tank further in this death spiral of falling demand. When states put more money in the pockets of people and continue services, contracyclically, you can get out of these death spirals. And long-term, you know, I think, again, we need to build a more resilient economy. Stimulus is now is vital, but not enough. We need to face this crisis uh, squarely, but get back to the work of creating an economy that makes families more resilient and businesses more resilient and government more capable. And if we do this right, Nick, we may even come out of this better off than we were going into it. Well, we shall see. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be exploring the inequality of this pandemic, how the people who are already suffering before coronavirus hit are suffering the most. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer, Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.